Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The heart and how it functions is often a topic of folklore, literature, psychology, and cardiology. In this second of a two-part series with Dr. Glenn Langer, a former professor of medicine and the former director of the Cardiovascular Research Laboratory at the UCLA School of Medicine, we talk about his book, Understanding Disease, How Your Heart, Lungs, Blood, and Blood Vessels Function and Respond to Treatment. One of Dr. Langer's primary goals is to demystify medicine and help the layperson understand its intrigues. After reading his book, I wanted Dr. Langer to join us here on Radio Curious. I met with him in the kitchen of his home overlooking the Pacific Ocean in the community of Little River in Mendocino County, California, and asked him to begin by telling us why he wrote this book. In the 35 or 40 years that I was in academic medicine and headed the cardiovascular research lab as well as being dean for research at UCLA, Barry, I was frequently asked to talk to lay groups and uh, about heart disease and um, found that a lot of those people really wanted to go deeper. They really wanted to know more. This was the average person. Yeah, that's the average. I talked to groups, everything from the Mercedes-Benz Club to Chambers of Commerce to women's study clubs, uh, you name it. Do you think that there was a particular interest in cardiovascular disease or disease in general? I think it's in disease in general, but because cardiovascular disease is so common, uh, it counts for, as you know, more than half the deaths in this country, uh, that just by virtue of the fact that the disease was common, people had had more experience with it. Uh, they knew they someone or... Knew, or themselves or someone or father, mother or whatever. Looking at our species now uh, in the year 2000, are we essentially the same as we were 500 years ago and it's public health that allows us to live longer? Yeah. Or is there... Um, uh, knowledge about cardiovascular disease that really makes a, a significant difference? Uh, probably both. I, we're essentially, 500 year span, uh, it's not much. Very, we're essentially the same. And uh, it's not a long time. Uh, uh, on the other hand, there's been tremendous advances. Uh, in the book, uh, in the preface to the book, I make mention of the fact that if you were a baby born in the Bronze Age, 1300 BC, your life expectancy was 40. If you were a baby born at the beginning of the last century in 1900, your life expectancy was 45. So in 3300 years, you'd gain five in life expectancy. But in the past in this years, century, in this century, we're into the high 70s now in life expectancy. Put another way, for every year one has lived in this century, one adds four months to one's life. That's an incredible statistic. Is that public health? Yes, Clean largely. Water? Largely, the, the the largest impact is infectious disease. Uh, is uh, obviously we haven't conquered it. There are a lot of them out there. And, you know, not, mention AIDS or 
you know, a lot of the viral stuff is still a major problem, um, as well as malaria. Malaria kills up to two million people a year. But um, big inroads in infectious disease, that's, that's the most prominent. But in cardiovascular disease, in the last 30 years, the mortality has gone down by 35%. Why? What's the change? That's a lot of public health. That's lifestyle. A lot of it is lifestyle uh, in terms of exercise, the food we eat, uh, and a lot of it is technology. Uh, what we're able to do in terms of modifying uh, and um, palliating, in the best sense of the word, um, various diseases. Uh, we're, we're able to do coronary bypasses where you've got angioplasty, we've got coronary care units. Um, no one who gets into a hospital now when they're having their heart attack or under paramedics care, almost no one dies of arrhythmia anymore. And uh, so it's a combination of all these things. Arrhythmia uh, for the layperson is defined as? Abnormality of the heartbeat. The sequencing of the heartbeat activity. Normally, it beats in a very regular lub dub, lub dub. That's right. It's fashion. Uh, there are two components to uh, heart muscle function. Actually, the heart, of course, is a pump. What it does is pumps blood throughout the body, and that's essentially all it does. Uh, so, it what does causes the heart. what causes the arrhythmia? Ah, that's a that's a uh, that's a complicated question. Let me see if we can go through it. Uh, prior to the heart's contracting, it has to be stimulated electrically, and the heart has an electrical circuit. The beat itself is is occurs spontaneously, automatically. Uh, as you know, you don't sit there and think uh, about uh, I have to have my heart beat so many times a minute. It, occurs naturally and completely automatically and originates in the upper part of the heart in the in a small chamber called the right atrium. And there are a group of cells there called sinus node cells. And those are the ones and from where the electric stimulation comes that's from? That's right. That's the natural pacemaker of the heart. And the pacemaker is natural because there's a spontaneous controlled shift of chemical elements across the cells in that in that particular area. Uh, charged chemical elements called ions and particularly in the sinus node the calcium ion is particularly important. And um, so depending on what is what a rate those ions change across the membranes of those individual cells will determine your basic heart rate. So, and that, you know, we're sitting here and your heart's going along at 70 a minute, Barry, those ions are shifting back and forth 70 times a minute. And that sends out a stimulus, much like throwing a, uh, a rock in a pond. You have the concentric um, distribution of those ex excitatory waves. And it spreads out over the two top chambers in the heart and then through the, and through a specialized system down to the lower chambers, which are the big pumping chambers. Right ventricle, left ventricle. Right ventricle sends blood to the lungs. Left ventricle, after it goes through the lungs, pumps it out to the rest of the body. So that electrical stimulus occurs in that defined sequence. Now, anything along that sequence 
which disrupts that from the sinus node down to the muscle cells themselves can produce an abnormality of the heartbeat or an arrhythmia. And the problem in one of the major problems is is that there are 300,000 sudden deaths that occur in this country every year. And of those 300,000, the overwhelming majority are due to an arrhythmia, abnormal heartbeat, occurring at the time or at the um, first portion, will I say, first fraction of time in a developing heart attack. And if if the individual is undercover, under the care of a paramedic when this occurs, or in the hospital, almost no one dies of that now. Well, they're not going to have a paramedic there unless the paramedic gets there real quickly. But you know, in many places, the paramedics are there in four or five minutes. Uh, not here on the coast, but uh, almost. I mean, they do a marvelous job here on the coast. And um, so when they're there, they have the defibrillator there. And the defibrillator is an electric shock? Yes. What happens there, because the process, if we can back up just for a minute, what happens with a heart attack is that disrupts the ionic or the chemical balance in the cell and causes a disruption in the flow of the current such that rather than being in a homogeneous spread with a defined front across the heart muscle from one point to another in a, in a wave-like, in a nice controlled wave-like manner, that impulse, because of the disruption in the, in the cells, probably based on chaotic theory. Can you explain what you mean by that, based yes. on chaotic theory? Yes. The fundamentals of chaotic theories indicate that the process of chaos, namely unpredictability, occurs because of extremely small changes in initial conditions. The example given classically in the literature that the climate on the west coast of California derives and is changed by a butterfly flapping its wings in Japan. Which is very unpredictable. <laughs> unpredictable and small. Yeah. <laughs> and the indications are a lot of the work actually going on in uh, the laboratory I was with, uh, uh, which I directed in at UCLA. And this work has developed greatly over the last three years. Um, this work indicates that an, a, a small change, a small change in initial conditions, namely in the ionic flow, will set up a sequence of unpredictable waves which swirl, which are very much like turbulent flow in terms of electricity. The change is the ionic connections. The, the, the ionic connections initiate that disruption. That disturb the regularity Clarity. of the heartbeat. And it, and it causes these waves to, re to come down rather than come down in a in a wave-like front, always proceeding in a unidirectional manner, they turn back on themselves, and the process is called re-entry. The cells which were stimulated to contract 
are stimulated again very rapidly. So in tachycardia, for instance, the very rapid heartbeat all of a sudden when a person is sitting still, that's the uh, chaotic theory. That may well be the start of the chaotic process and the entry, the entry into reentry. And this reentry causes a swirling of these beats. So the heart, instead of a, a cohesive kind of contraction, 70, 80 times a minute, fibrillates, sits and actually shakes. And the beating is on a minute scale, so there's no propulsion of the blood. There's no pressure. There's no pressure developed. I want to ask you about uh, why there seems to be um, a propensity for this to occur during exercise. But first I want to tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Dr. Glenn Langer about a recent book that he wrote called Understanding Disease, How Your Heart, Lungs, Blood, and Blood Vessels Function and Respond to Treatment. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Glenn, fibrillation, um, or the stopping of a heart altogether, often happens during heavy exercise. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that's shown up in your research uh, as to why you know, there's a greater propensity at that time and when a person is sleeping or sitting sure. still? Largely because of supply and demand, Barry. Uh, if there is disease of the coronary vessels and uh, the occlusion might be 60-70%. And by occlusion, occlusion mean, I mean the blockage in the coronary artery by an atherosclerotic plaque which has developed over years that blockage is uh, such that at 60-70% of the artery, in normal activity during the day, you or the patient, whoever has that blockage, may not be aware of it at all. But basically the artery is 60-70% to 70 plugged. That's right, correct. Now, what would, might happen is, and there are many sudden deaths which occur without an actual total occlusion of that artery. And that's because they're occurring at a time when an individual is undergoing increased stress, either exercise, emotional stress, or whatever, in which the heart rate goes up, the demand for blood supply to the rest of the body goes up, especially if you're running for the bus or, you know, skiing at 8,000 feet or whatever. And the supply-demand ratio gets out of whack, that the heart muscle is not receiving enough blood for the activity which is being demanded. And the activity, again, is the pumping of the blood the through, activity through the lungs the and to the body. Blood. And, the, and the cardiac output demand, the output, the, the output of blood from the heart under extreme tension or extreme activity, may, that demand may be go, go up five to six times. When you run for that bus, or you know, depends on how badly you want to catch the bus, but that's what might happen. And when that happens, the cells become deficient in blood supply. It's called ischemia. And if ischemia or deficiency in blood supply occurs, the cells begin to leak one of these important chemical ions, which we talked about. In this case, potassium. And these are the cells in the portion of the heart that regulates the beat. No, doesn't have to be. Throughout can the body? Be, can, can, can be in any cell in the heart. Can be any cell. You have three billion cells in the heart. And it can be in any group of thousand, couple thousand, ten thousand cells. 
where they're not receiving sufficient blood supply and begin to leak this potassium because the it's interesting because the lack of blood supply diminishes a high energy compound in the cell it's called adenosine triphosphate it's the main source of chemical energy it's where chemical energy is stored in the body if that level goes down too low it opens up a little channel in the membrane or covering of the heart muscle cell and potassium specifically potassium leaks out and, and then what happens and if it leaks out then the electrical configuration of the cell which during the rest time particularly during the time between beats is very dependent on upon potassium and if that happens then the electrical the configuration of the electrical stimulation of the cell which is called an action potential makes sense action right. potential and the configuration of that begins to change dramatically which greatly disturbs the conduction through that group of cells and causes block in one direction each cell uh Barry to back up a little bit here each cell is like a little battery it has the ability to develop a a voltage just like your battery and it's based upon different concentration of chemicals across different regions of the cell very much like your car battery works in fact it's exactly analogous as a matter of fact and when these these proportions of the ions change for instance in this case because it's cells leaking this potassium because it doesn't have enough blood and we're still at the time of uh, sudden heavy exercise yeah that's right and it's this is actually what we're talking about is the basis of the stress test because the way they record the electric activity across the heart is by an electrocardiogram which they strap on you when you get on your treadmill to take your exercise test in the exercise test if your supply demand ratio goes out of whack like we're talking about you're not getting enough blood for the activity those cells leak potassium and you can see changes in the electrocardiograph configuration now they don't take it to a point hopefully where it's to such an extent that this reentry process or ventricular fibrillation starts sometimes on a stress test that does happen and now we're back to your original question if fibrillation starts which are these thousands and thousands of little circuits which shouldn't be there and cause local stimulation of millions of these cells in the heart so the heart just sits there and shakes or fibrillates and there's no blood and then you faint and if you don't reestablish this in 4 minutes then you begin to get death of brain cells and that's what you don't want so and the reason why you faint is because the heart is stopped and there's no blood to the brain that's right. and gravity pulls it down to your feet well there's just no blood flowing anywhere you know i mean it just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't flow and that's why cpr is so important because you provide external pressure and pump it out anyway um so when you give a give a you pull out your defibrillator and you give a big direct current shock to the chest it 
brings all the cells in the heart back to the same electrical state. And your hope is, is that now since you've interrupted this process of fibrillation, this local chaotic process, that when it picks up again, it's going to pick up in the normal way. Much like if you've got a hang up in your computer, many times you have to put your, it. put your computer down and reboot it. Hmm? So, so what you're doing in a sense, Barry, is rebooting the heart. And does this generally take? Uh, depends if it's done rapid, if, if it's done very um, soon after the fibrillation process starts. It's quite effective. The longer the heart's in fibrillation, the more difficult it becomes. What is the voltage that's used? The voltage is direct current voltage. It's a direct current which penetrates the chest much better. And uh, when I was first an intern, it was before the fibrillator was developed. That's back in the dark ages in the 50s. Um, the only chance, we didn't, we didn't understand that direct current was could be done from outside. So if somebody did this, we opened the chest and would apply, you know, current off the line, which is an alternating current, and that was very ineffective. So um, is it like the 12 volt on a car? Can you can you use jumper cables if that's all you have available? No, no, you have to have this stored up, and you have to give a, you know, it's it's a fairly massive blast. It's it's expressed in joules, which is a unit of energy, and you have to go up to uh, a considerable blast to do this. Uh, uh, the 12-volt on your battery is not going to do it. Well, Glenn, let's talk about ways of uh, hopefully preventing this. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned exercise and diet. Mm -hmm. uh, for the average person um, between maybe the ages of 50 and 70 who doesn't exercise a lot and says, well, I feel fine and I'll um, exercise tomorrow, Yeah. Um, what do you recommend? Yeah. Well, I recommend that, number one, if this person gets religion and says, yeah, I better exercise every day, start gradually and grade it up. And it varies depending on your age, how much exercise you want to. You'd like to try to get up into a situation where you're near the maximum pulse rate for your age. Uh, in, the, in the presence, of course, or in the absence of any heart disease, because if you're pushing too hard, you can push yourself into trouble, so you better have a physical and exam and have somebody tell you what exercise level you should be at. You push yourself into potential fibrillation. Fibrillation, right. You can push yourself too far, you get a, a, a screw-up in your supply-demand ratio, and you got a problem. What is the maximum um, heart rate for a person's age? Is there a formula for yes. figuring that? Yes, there is. Yeah, there are formulas in virtually all exercise books. Actually, most of your treadmills or your bicycles and so on come with this. And But before you get there, you want to you wanna talk to your physician and, and have an exam, find out what shape your heart's in at, the, at that time, as well as other portions of your circulation, and before you start something like that. Unfortunately, um, in our country now, a lot of people People don't have access to a doctor to get an exam. Mm -hmm. What should a person like that who doesn't have access do if they kind of sense they should get a little more exercise? Again, uh, a tough question in a way, right? I've got to be careful here because if uh, not only do you, well, let me put it this way, you may feel fine, but you may have a 60, 70% occlusion. And you, know, you don't know it. And you don't know it. 
and you get out there and the first day you decide to you know go up that hill and push yourself as hard and the tendency for us is to push ourselves hard because we want to test ourselves we want to say gee if i did that and i didn't get any chest pain or anything i must be in good shape and it's reassuring right i mean that's the psychology of this kind of thing yeah uh that is a big mistake that's what that is and you got to be careful about that so uh, really uh, there are you know people can get to a clinic or somewhere where uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of folks can get to a clinic and get a basic checkup and find out you know how much they should be doing but the point is also now with diet uh is that with diet, what you're trying to do is modify, essentially what you're trying to modify is your cholesterol metabolism. And what you're trying to do is to drop your total cholesterol. And it's cholesterol that forms the blockages? It's the cholesterol which is embedded in the wall of the artery which forms the atherosclerotic plaque. Which is the, which What's is. What's that in, in common? In common in English terminology. It's a bunch, it's a bunch of crud in, in, in the wall of your artery, which through, is made up of fat. Throughout and, the body or just in the heart? Oh, can occur, can occur in all the vessels, can occur in all the vessels, on, on, particularly on the arterial side, which is the side which goes, which supplies the blood to the tissues, uh, and the the bad actor in this all of this is uh, the famous or infamous LDL, and that's uh, the low density lipoproteins, which is one form of cholesterol. That's the bad guy. The good guy is HDL, which is the high density, high density. lipoprotein, and that's the one that carries the cholesterol to the liver so that it can be excreted. Glenn, can you um, tell us the kind of foods uh, that we should avoid and the kinds of foods that we should consume? Sure. Sure. You want to avoid the things that have saturated fats. What are they? Uh, they're the red meats uh, you know, and dairy. Red meats and dairy. So it's butter and eggs? Butter and eggs. Eggs are not, uh, we're known more as culprits in the pit. They're not as bad for you probably as we thought they were. But certainly, uh, you know, the, the, but, the butter and uh, the cream and all of that. And red meat. Prefer margarine to butter? Yeah, sure, sure. Red meat. And the thing you want to have are those things that are not saturated but... We want some unsaturated, and things like olive oil are are the way to go. Uh, certain nuts, uh, avocado, <laughs> uh, those kinds of things are good unsaturated because they tend to bring up the level of the high density lipoprotein, the good guy. Well, Dr. Glenn Langer, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I would like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. A book that was published quite a while ago. And uh, I like to read history. And this book is Eleanor of Aquitaine. And it's by an author called Marion Mead. And it's a marvelous book of that time in the Middle Ages. And uh, just beautifully written. Uh, Learned a lot about that period in history. Dr. Glenn Langer, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Dr. Glenn Langer is a retired professor of medicine with a specialty in cardiology. He is the founder, along with his wife, of the Partnership Scholars Program, 
a program to provide a mentoring program for bright young students who might never otherwise be exposed to further education. The book that Dr. Langer recommends is The Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea by Gary Kinder. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.